Well, I know that you are all very smart people. That's why you're at uni. And so I have a seriously challenging intellectual question for you. This is a question that people have argued over for as long as Homo sapiens have walked the earth. It's a question over which the greatest minds have been divided. Here it is. Ready? Are gods real? Is there something else out there beyond this universe that we see? Is there something maybe more powerful, maybe more unifying, maybe even personal? Is there a divine reality or is the divine an illusion? Now, this question is a lot more than just a challenging intellectual conundrum. The answer to this question really matters. Historically, the arguments over the answer to that question, in particular, which gods are real, has led and still leads today to, frankly, horrendous atrocities. From the Crusades to modern-day religious persecution and even supposed justification for acts of terror. In fact, some are arguing that until we realise that the answer to the question is actually no, gods are not real, some are saying only then will we have true peace. Are gods real? Is the divine a reality? And if so, given all the competing and contradictory claims as to which god or gods are real, how would you tell the difference? How would you know which one's real? Atheism, Buddhism, animism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, all have conflicting views of whether the divine is real, and if so, what it's like. So who's right? Is there a divine reality? Are there gods? If so, which ones are really God? How are you going to work it out? Well, with such a significant question, and with, frankly, so much writing on it, there have been lots of attempts to work out an answer. I'm at point two on page 10 of your booklet, if you haven't worked that out. The first type of attempt is what we call natural theology. Trying to answer the question from human reason. We're going to try to work out whether gods are real just by thinking it out for ourselves. For example, there's all sorts of philosophical arguments put forward to try and prove the existence of a divine being. Maybe you've come across some of those arguments for the existence of God. I'm going to share one with you. Here is a moral argument for God's existence. Three statements. It goes like this. First of all, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Now, think about it for a moment. I know as an engineer, you're going, well, I just, where's the equal sign? I don't know what you're doing. Like, what are you, right? Anyway, just pretend you're a philosophy student for a moment, okay? Think about this. It seems to make sense, actually. Without some sort of divine being, on what basis are you going to establish a universal objective set of morals and duties? We can all have our own subjective values and duties, but without some external source, there's no basis for an objective set of values and duties that must apply to everyone. And so it's hard to fathom what such an external source of objective values would be other than some sort of moral divine being. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties don't exist. That's the first statement. Second statement, however, objective moral values and duties do exist. Now, this may not be immediately obvious to you. You have to think about it. Is this statement, this premise, more likely to be true or not true? Certainly seems to me most people agree that there are certain actions that are immoral no matter what the person doing it might think themselves. I'll give you an example. To kill another person just for pleasure. I reckon probably all of us would be very quick to affirm that it is not okay 
to kill another person for pleasure. Moreover, I think we'd agree that if someone did think it was okay, we would say, you're wrong. No matter what you think, it's not okay. There are objective moral values and duties, and it's not right to kill someone for pleasure. So it seems more likely than not that objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, third statement, since objective moral values and duties do exist, therefore, God exists. If you accept the first two dot points, then this is just a logical, straightforward conclusion. Now, that's just one sort of philosophical argument for the existence of God. Just now that you know that, I'm sure you could pass philosophy 101 if you need the extra credit. There you go. Now, there are lots of other famous philosophical arguments that you can chase up online. A good starting place, if you're interested in this sort of stuff, is a website by William Lane Craig called Reasonable Faith, uh, which is where I've drawn this particular version of the moral argument from. But another example of this sort of natural theology that you might have heard of are the arguments for God's existence from what we call intelligent design. Now, the argument here goes that certain aspects of the world around us have such remarkable features that the most reasonable explanation for their existence is that they are the work of an intelligent designer, rather than, say, the result of Darwinian evolution. Now, a particular example of these are what's claimed to be irreducibly complex biological systems. What's an irreducibly complex biological system? It's a single biological system that has several component parts, but if you remove any of the component parts, the system stops functioning. Now, for example, I am not an irreducibly complex biological system because you can remove parts of me and I will still function. You can remove my appendix, say, I will just keep on functioning. I may be a bit sore, but no real problem. So I am not irreducibly complex, but the claim is that there are plenty of irreducibly complex biological systems. For example, and here's one, the Sicilium. Who's ever heard of a Sicilium before? Seriously, two people? No one studies biology anymore. No? Okay. Let me acquaint you with the Sicilium, because though you don't know it, you have lots of them. Okay. So the Sicilium, they're the little hair-like things on the picture that I just put up on the screen. That's the, not the cell, it's the little hair-like structure. A Sicilium is, sorry, Sicilium. Sicilium, not Sicilium. It's because I don't know what I'm talking about, right? I never studied biology. I live. What do I need to study it for? Um, a psyllium. Now you're going, ah, oh, yeah, we all know about psylliums. A psyllium is this hair-like structure that, that can wave fluid over the surface of a cell. And you can find cilia on the cells of animals and plants and including our cells. In fact, the cells lining your respiratory tract have each cell about 200 cilia on them that beat in time, they feel the beat, and they move in time to move the mucus towards your throat. Biology is just gross, basically. Um, and as biologists have examined the psyllium, it seems that every component part of the psyllium is needed for it to do its work. It appears to be irreducibly complex. Now, the significance of this is that it is very difficult for Darwinian evolution to explain the rise of an irreducibly complex biological system like the psyllium. Because Darwinian evolution says that a complex biological system evolves from a simpler, functioning biological system. But since the psyllium appears to be irreducibly complex, you can't remove a part of its system without it ceasing to function. So it's hard to see how the psyllium could have evolved through stages of simpler functioning systems. And we certainly don't have any evidence of simpler versions of the psyllium from which it might have evolved. So the argument goes, a more reasonable conclusion is the psyllium displays evidence of being designed. Intentionally, 
intelligently designed as a complete, irreducibly complex biological system. So the thelium and other irreducibly complex biological systems point to the existence of an intelligent designer, a creator god, by any other name. Okay, there's a bit of an, some examples of natural theology. What do you make of it? What do you think about those arguments? Are they convincing? Certainly they're interesting. They might impress, might impress your mates when you're sitting in Manning Bar or down at Ralph's having a coffee. But for whatever they're worth, I say they are incredibly limited. The weakness of these arguments is that they just don't get us very far. At best, they might persuade us that some sort of divine being exists, maybe with some sort of deliberate intelligence that has hardwired some design and moral values into the universe, but it doesn't tell us what this God or God's is really like. It doesn't tell us how this God or God's wants to interact with us, or even if it wants to. It doesn't tell us whether this God or God's has any concern or purpose for us, or how or if we are meant to relate to it, or them. Natural theology really tells us nothing about any relationship we might have with this divine being or beings. And so really, it has no impact on anything we do. Because the God discerned by natural theology is silent. It is a dumb divinity that doesn't speak. Well, a second effort to answer the question, which gods are real, comes from what's called general revelation. This is the idea that God has revealed certain things about himself in the creation that he's made. It's a general revelation open to all because it's apparent in the very created world in which we live. From a Christian point of view, we are on much more solid ground here, since the concept of general revelation through creation comes from the Bible. What can you know about God just by looking at creation? Well, have a look at Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20, at the bottom of page 10. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, His eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things He has made. So they are without excuse. So when you stand at the lookout, struck by the beauty and immensity of the world, or when you know on your phone you're inundated with sunset after sunset on Instagram, right? What can you deduce about the one true God from that Instagram feed? Well, it's that, what, that whoever God is, God is incredibly powerful, powerful enough to create all this, eternally powerful, and if he created all this, then God must be more than whatever has been created. That there is indeed some divine reality beyond this that has made it. So we can perceive God's eternal power and his divine nature. Uh, Psalm 19 puts it more poetically at the top of page 11. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the world, their words to the ends of the world. Though you hear no audible voice, day and night, the skies announce to all the earth, the glory of the God who made it. So if you are awed by yet another glorious sunset or the countless stars in the Milky Way, if you're awed by that glory, imagine for a moment the glory, the greater glory of the God who made it. And yet there's an inherent limitation here too in general revelation, which the rest of Romans 1 makes clear. You can see on your page. 
Verse 21. For though they knew God, that is through what he had made, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. See, the real problem in general revelation is not what is revealed. The problem is that we don't listen. Instead of worshipping the one true living God who's made his reality and power clear through his creation, we worship the things he's created. Animals, people, ourselves, power, money, fame, success. We choose to ignore what he has made clear through his creation and refusing to take hold of what he's revealed is what the Bible calls sin. The problem with general, general revelation is not that God is silent. The problem is that we are willfully deaf. We're deafened by sin such that we refuse to listen to what the one true God has to say about himself through his creation. So the conclusion is that our attempts to answer the question about God don't get us very far. Natural theology delivers us at best a God or gods who are unable to speak and our own sinful disposition means that we refuse to truly listen to what the one living God has actually said through his general revelation. The result? We are left in silence. except that the one true living God doesn't leave us in that silence. The one true living God has not stayed silent. And this is the, the wonderful, the literally life-changing Christian claim that the one true living God has addressed us directly. He has spoken not in the voiceless words of creation, not in those intangible feelings of the numinous, oh, I feel like God is speaking to me, not, not like that. He has spoken in audible, comprehensible, regular speech. Look at this passage from Isaiah 44, still there on page 11. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. So the Lord God makes an absolute claim to uniqueness. There's no other God except him alone. What evidence does he give for this? Read on, verse 7. Who then is like me, he says. Let him proclaim it. The challenge is for any other God to speak up, to say something. In particular, keep going. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Have you ever wondered whether you're God, whether you are God? No? Oh, but if, if you've ever wondered whether you are God, here's the test. The test to see whether you are God is can you foretell with 100% accuracy constantly what is yet to take place? Can you with complete accuracy predict the future? And the Lord God says, you see what's happened to my people, the Israelites? It has gone down with them exactly as I said it would. What does it mean if you can completely predict the future? It means much more than just being having like a sneak peek into the future. To have complete predictive powers means you control the future. The reason the Lord can tell you what will happen is because he makes it happen. That's divine power. That's divine sovereignty over his creation. The challenge to other so-called gods is to predict what will happen. Because that's actually a challenge to them to say, can you control the future? 
Do you have that sovereign, divine power or not? And then the Lord God finishes with a note of comfort for his people. If he really is the true God, with that sort of sovereign control, then then his people have nothing to fear. Verse 8, do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Now, how did the Lord God speak those words that we just read there in Isaiah 44? He didn't speak them out loud himself to the Israelites. We know that the way he spoke those words to the Israelites was through one of his prophets, the prophet Isaiah. But the Christian claim is not that the one true God spoke just through a series of prophets. Have a look there at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, the verses that Tim read out for us right as we started this session. Bottom of page 11. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. The distinctive Christian claim is that the one true living God has spoken climactically and definitively in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we start to explore how God has spoken, that particular two verses from Hebrews 1 That is setting our trajectory for these first two talks. This morning, we're doing a super quick overview of God speaking through the prophets, and then tonight, how God spoke through His Son, Jesus. So if you want to turn over the page, we're going to do an incomplete short history of the most important speeches ever given, namely the speeches given by God Himself. According to the Christian scriptures, the entire universe came into being with a word from God. Uh, One writer put it this way, God preaches and the world was made. As you read through Genesis 1, God speaks and the universe is formed and filled. If you've got your Bible there, why don't you turn open to Genesis chapter 1. Let me read you the first few verses from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Each of the six days of creation have the same form. Each day starts with God speaking an aspect of creation into being. In fact, everything God creates He creates by speaking from the sky to the plants to the animals, even human beings. Jump down to verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Everything that is has come into existence through the words of God who speaks things into being. Now, just for the curious, you might be wondering a bit, I wonder what it would have been like to be there. If somehow I could have been there, would I actually have heard a voice saying, let there be light? I guess it would have been in Hebrew. Like, Well, actually, it would have been very difficult to hear an audible voice, wouldn't it? Because if God hadn't yet got around to creating an atmosphere to carry the sound waves, you're not going to hear anything. Which sort of makes you think, well, how should I understand this, that God spoke and the world was made? 
Now, if you turn around your booklet, you can see a quotation there from Andrew Sheed on the facing page on this question. Andrew Sheed says, These would not be words as we know them. Airy vibrations that carry meaning and some types of power to such living creatures as can understand them. Rather, they would be the transmaterial speech of an uncreated spirit that is understood or complied with or conformed to by every atom of the material universe. We have a cat in our family called Lucy. The general principle when you're giving a public talk is don't mention your children because they might get upset. I can talk about Lucy because I don't, well, she doesn't like me anyway. When I say to Lucy, Lucy, stop scratching the lounge with her claws. She just keeps on doing it. She's not, she's not something that can understand my speech. Well, it could be that her heart is hardened by sin, actually. Is more likely. But when God speaks, every atom of the material universe is drawn into being and falls into line. You can see this in Genesis 1 by the repeated phrase, and it was so. Time and time again through the chapter we're told, God said, and it was so. God's declarations have an effect. You can see there on your page another quote from Andrew Sheed, top right, under the heading, The Power of God's Word. The power of the Word of God is that it does what it says. And it does what it says because of whose Word it is. And because the Word is a divine Word, it need only be spoken in order to be done. Not just because God is true, but because His speech in and of itself affects the contents of its declarations. The God who speaks cannot be separated from the speech He utters. When the one true living God speaks, it's Him who speaks and whatever He says, as the one true living sovereign God, what He says happens. So we get this picture here from Genesis 1 that that one of the ways God acts in the world is by speaking because His speech creates the very thing He declares. His speech is one of His ways of acting in this world. God Himself says as much in Isaiah 55, 10 to 11, which is there in the middle on the right-hand side of your page. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's way there of achieving His purpose in the world is by speaking. The word from His mouth, because of who He is, never returns to Him empty. It never fails. It always succeeds in the purpose for which He speaks it. So you're getting a bit of a picture of what it is like when God, the one true living God, speaks. It's a powerful word. It's a life-giving word. It speaks living beings like you and me into existence. Now that's just some reflections on God speaking at creation. But what else has God said? We'll go back to the diagram on the facing page. The next stop in our short history is with a guy named Abram, or Abraham, as God uh, God later renamed him. In an act of undeserved kindness, which is what we call grace, In an act of grace, God speaks to Abram, one guy, and he establishes a covenant with him by speaking to him. A covenant is a binding agreement established, in this case, by God with Abram and Abram's descendants. 
It's a set of agreed responsibilities taken on by both parties with various promises to be fulfilled when the responsibilities are met and various punishments when those responsibilities are not met. What a covenant does is establish a relationship between two parties. And here God says, this is the covenant I am establishing with you, Abram, and your descendants. God speaks and establishes this covenant relationship with this person he chooses by grace. And in this case, the promise attached to that covenant made with Abram actually involves you. The promise God made as part of this covenant involves you. Yes, you. Because God's promise to Abram was that through Abram and his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. All the nations. That includes us here at Ancon. So God's speech to Abram is critical for us here and now. Indeed, to all humanity across the globe. Because through that speech... God established a covenant relationship that is key for us and all people being blessed by him today. We're going to look more at that in your review group. Well, the next stop along our short history of God speaking is at Mount Sinai. You can see Mount Sinai there, the middle of your page. The cloud on top of it, thunder, lightning. Hard for me to draw thunder, but you've got the lightning anyway. And Moses standing there on the mountain with the two stone tablets, and no, that is not a Macca's sign. And there at the bottom of the mountain are the assembled Israelites freaking out. Why are they freaking out? Because they hear the one true living God speak to Moses from the cloud on the mountain. Yes, they heard an actual voice, and it terrified them. You sometimes thought, oh, yeah, I just wish God would just speak to me, address me, really. It, they thought they were going to die when that happened. Turn up in your Bibles to Exodus 19 and 20. We're going to look at some things here in these chapters together. Exodus 19 and 20. Start there in Exodus 19, verse 9, where the Lord God reveals his plan to speak to his people, to Moses. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. And then uh, God gives them three days for the people to prepare themselves to hear him speak. That's verses 10 to 15. And then when the day comes, this is how it's described. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently at the sound of the trumpet grew loud and louder. Moses spoke and the voice of God answered. The whole experience freaks them out so much that they beg Moses to speak with God apart from them because they're worried they won't survive the experience. Flick to chapter 20, verses 18 to 23. Chapter 20, verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves 
that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. It's a scary thing to have the one true living God speak directly to you in all his power and might and glory. It is never to be taken lightly. There is a right and proper fear of the living God. Now, it's not a fear that says, this is out of control. Who knows what will happen next? No, because God is faithful. God is good. He's not random and unpredictable. Nevertheless, he is never to be taken for granted. We're not to take liberties with him. We're to have a proper respectful boundary in our relationship with him, a reverent fear without being needlessly afraid, which is what Moses says there to the Israelites. Don't be afraid, you won't die, but God does want you to have a right fear of him so that you do what he says, and that right fear will keep you from sinning. So what does God actually say to the Israelites trembling there at the bottom of the mountain? Well, he makes a covenant with them. Not a covenant to replace the one he established with Abraham, but one that builds on it, that gives it a more specific shape. Uh, The basis of this covenant are the Ten Commandments, literally the Ten Words that the Lord God speaks to the Israelites. You can see there in your Bible in Exodus 20 verse 1, it begins like this. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Notice there in that second commandment, there is both warning and comfort. Warning that God is righteous and he will bring down judgment on those who reject him, but also comfort that he is abundantly loving, even to a thousand generations. So that's just the first two of the ten words that he gives. There's another eight. Don't misuse the Lord's name. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't covet what isn't yours. These words from God tell the Israelites how they are to live as his covenant people in the world. And as always when God speaks, there's consequences for how we respond. If they keep his covenant and obey his words, they'll be a people set apart for him, set apart from every nation on the earth. Flick back to chapter 19 in Exodus, 19, 4 to 6. 19, 4 to 6. The Lord says, You see yourselves what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the promise here is that this people will be his treasured possession, a nation set apart from all the others by their covenant relationship with him. But as we saw there in the second commandment, there are warnings too, if they ignore his words and break his covenant. Now I want to dig down just a little bit more into this Mount Sinai moment, because when God speaks to the Israelites, He doesn't just tell them what to do and why to do it. Wrapped up with it is God revealing himself to them. God telling them who he is. We heard of it a bit there just at the beginning of the 10 words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of slavery. But a bit later at Mount Sinai, God reveals himself in even clearer words to Moses. So flip over to Exodus 33 and 34. 
Exodus 33 and 34. Chapter 33, verse 18. In uh, chapter 33, verse 18, Moses has a very bold request. Then Moses says to the Lord, Now, show me your glory. And the Lord says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no, man, uh, no one may see me and live. So the Lord then hides Moses in a slit or a cleft in the rock. And then we read in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, or verse 5, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So here's the point. When the one true God speaks, he reveals his character the one true living god is not capricious he's not uncaring he's not unmoved he tells us himself he's the compassionate gracious slow to anger god who abounds in love and faithfulness he forgives sin and rebellion but also he's just he's righteous sin never goes unpunished on god's watch so this is the significance of the mount sinai moment god speaks and reveals himself and the covenant that he graciously and lovingly establishes with his people, with all of its promises, its warnings, its comforts, and its judgments. So we could go on, we could trace God speaking through the rest of the Christian Old Testament, through the series of prophets God raised up to be his mouthpiece. You can see them there on your page, in outline form anyway. There's Samuel, there's Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Malachi, so on. All the way through to John the Baptist, who we meet in the opening chapters of the New Testament Gospels. But we don't have time to do that. Instead, I want to pause here and draw some summary statements together. You can see the two boxes on the diagram, starting with the one on the left. Just thinking about God speaking in these moments that we've seen, what sort of words does God speak? How can we pull this together? How would you summarize it? Well, here's my summary. God speaks words of life and power. We saw that particularly, didn't we, at creation. God speaks words of grace and truth. As an act of undeserved grace, God speaks to Abraham and to the Israelites. In fact, God's act of creation is itself a word spoken in grace. But there's also a word of truth, right? What God says happens. We saw that in creation, but it's true too in his dealings with Abraham and the Israelites. God is utterly faithful to his word because his word creates the very reality of which it speaks. So we can say a bit more. God speaks words of warning and judgment. Heard it there at Mount Sinai. God warns his people. He is just and will respond to human sin and rebellion. And as you read through these accounts of God interacting with his people, starting right at the beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he announces judgment when people fail to heed his warnings. But finally, God also speaks words of comfort and hope. He promises good things to those who listen to him, who respond obediently to what he says. We saw that with Abraham, we saw it at Mount Sinai. So that's our summary of the sort of words that the one true living God speaks. Words of life and power, grace and truth, warning and judgment, comfort and hope. I reckon you should get those in your head as a summary of the sort of words the one true living God speaks. But as we noted before, when God speaks these words, he reveals his character. 
who he is. So there in the top right box on your page, through his speech, God shows himself, reveals himself to be the one who is full of authority. God is not just powerful, he has authority. Authority, see, is a relational word. It implies, rightly, that he is able to call the shots. We need to listen to him. He's the one full of authority. And we've seen the incredible extent of that authority, especially in creation. When he speaks, the whole universe falls into line. He's full of authority. But also, when he speaks, he reveals that he is the one full of righteousness. God doesn't let sin and wickedness go unpunished. He genuinely cares about justice. And because he's full of authority, he's able to do something about it. But we see from the things God says that he's on about justice. He is full of righteousness. And finally, when God speaks, he reveals himself to be the one full of love. The reason he speaks words of grace and comfort and warning is because he's full of love. God is the loving creator. He cares for all that he has made. He cares for every one of you. When God speaks, he speaks as the one who is and has revealed himself to be full of love. So that's our summary that we're going to come back to throughout this week. What does it mean when we say God speaks? The one true living God speaks words of life and power, grace and truth, warning and judgment, comfort and hope. And when he speaks those words, he reveals himself to be the one who is full of authority, righteousness and love. Now, you may notice that there was another mountain there on your diagram, which I didn't speak about. It's actually there just as a sneak peek where we're heading for the rest of the week. Again, there's a mountain and three, this time three astonished onlookers. Their names were Peter, James and John. Again, the prophets Moses and Elijah make a return appearance. But the man at the center is Jesus of Nazareth. Again, a cloud appears on a mountain, but this time the voice of God from the mountain does not say, listen to me. This time, the voice of the living God from the cloud on the mountain says, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. No longer is God speaking through Moses or the other prophets. He's doing something better now. He's going to speak through his son, Jesus. And just as we've listened to the voice of God from the cloud, now we're to listen to Jesus. But that's for tonight. So let's wrap up this first session. Left to our own devices... We were never going to get very far working out the identity of the one true living God. Natural theology never got us very far. And our own refusal to listen to what God has to say through his creation means that general revelation doesn't help us much either. But thank God he did not leave us in ignorance and silence. He has spoken. And as we've seen, when he speaks, it is no small matter. In fact, the picture that we've seen is that how you respond to God's words is how you respond to Him. Uh, Timothy Ward, in the quote back on the other page, puts it like this, God has invested Himself in His words. Or we could say that God has so identified Himself with His words that whatever someone does to God's words whether it's to obey or to disobey, they do directly to God himself. You cannot be for God, but ignore his word. Because in his relationship with us, God has invested himself in his word. So the challenge for us this week is as follows. Will you this week Listen to what God has to say.
through his word. Are you ready to listen? Secondly, will you listen humbly? Since God is the one who is full of authority and righteousness and love, will you listen humbly? Not in judgment over what he says, but with a humble mind seeking to understand what God is indeed saying to us. The third, will you listen obediently this week? Because to respond to God's words is to respond to God himself. When God speaks, it is for our good. Will you take in God's word, be changed by it, so that you might know him better, love him, serve him, which is the very life for which he created you? Will we listen humbly? Let me lead us in prayer to that very end. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you did not leave us in ignorance and silence, but that you have spoken through your prophets and climactically and wonderfully in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Please, Father, by your Spirit, so work in our minds and hearts that we might listen attentively to you in your word this week, that we may listen humbly, that we may listen obediently, all to your glory and the Lord Jesus full of authority, righteousness and love.